and noticing that. And so I, I don't like the whole light thing because of the light, you know, the heights and all that. And you always got to do different stuff. And so one year we were having a relatively intense discussion about putting Christmas stuff up. I'm like, listen, we're not having anybody over anyway. We're going and traveling and Santa's going to show up somewhere else. And so I'm like, why do we even care about it? And I was, I was told quite convincingly that we care about it. And so I cared about it. And I got up in the attic. And as I was up in the attic, you know, you've got the attic and we had a plywood floor and all that. And, but as a part of our attic, we have this little hole in there that, because it was part of the garage that, um, so you had to be careful as you stepped over. Again, being conscious of heights, you notice that you're 10 to 12 feet from concrete floor. And um, I don't need any help looking not pretty. And so I figured, hey, I need to make sure. And so being as conscious as I was of the heights, as being as aware as I was of the discussion that my wife and I had been having about lights and how excited I was about it. And previously to getting the box that I was needing for the lights, I had handed down a box of something that was of great import, and apparently it was supposed to be in one piece and not in multiple pieces, and so that had kind of gotten us a little bit more excited about this season. And so I just, in all that joy and all that excitement, I just slid across the floor was my desire. Like I wanted to get from one side to the other side because that box was there. It had the stuff on it. I saw Christmas lights. I was excited. Boom, I went across, and um, it wasn't like a bowling alley. It was more like a whole bunch of rocks with one log that had my name on it. And I don't know about you, but plywood, when it starts to come apart, It starts to come apart. And I mean, I shoved a log, not in my eye, but in my thigh. And there was a quick worship service right there. (laughs) Like, oh, my Lord, what is going on? And so this is that time of year where you're just thinking about what in the world. And so it's easy to get distracted by other things. And there's tension and all that different kind of stuff. And so this morning, I want us just to kind of draw our attention to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and this idea of what does it mean for the Messiah to come and be among us? What does it mean for God in the flesh to walk among us and be unto us? A Savior is born. A child is given. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about it. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about this idea of what does it mean for him to be a mighty God? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we'll read this verse together. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this, for a child will be born for us and a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be named wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. So this idea of what does it mean for something to be mighty? And when I think about that, I think about, you know, a big car engine or I think about a big gun or some of these things that are powerful. And so the idea of mighty in the Bible is one that's an unstoppable force, that that there's such a strength that whenever God fights that he's unable to lose, that that's the might with which the Bible is talking about. So this mighty idea, and in Isaiah, or actually in Jeremiah 32, it says this, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And this idea of an outstretched arm is we, in America, we have this right arm thing. And so actually you think about it for a long time when someone was left-handed, we even taught them to be 
right-handed, right? And so we've kind of moved away from that, but there's still that idea. In other places around the world, you can't even use your left hand for any other things. You have to use your right hand. So this idea of your right arm being strong. And so this is the image here that Jeremiah is talking about, that, that God reached out with his right arm. And with that strength that comes from his right arm, he created the heavens and the earth. What a beautiful image for us. And then the next part of that, it says, nothing is too difficult for you. That his might is such so powerful that there's nothing too difficult for him. Now, one of the exciting things for me as a parent, up until about kindergarten, where my kids thought that there was nothing too difficult for me. Right? So you get to that place of like, hey, your your dad, you can do whatever. You're like super strong. You're superman. The kids can jump off the edge of a cliff or the edge of the swimming pool, and you'll catch them time and time again. And, you know, all these different things that you can do. There's nothing that's too difficult for you. And then they get into kindergarten math. And they bring home their homework, and you're like, what? When did they change this stuff? You know, you've seen that. I've seen it on Facebook. You're like, what's all this new math stuff? Listen, you realize in that moment that there are some things that are too difficult for you. And your humanity comes forth. And so this idea of there is nothing too difficult for a mighty God, that he reaches out with his outstretched right arm, and he's powerful, and he's mighty, and he's strong. And Isaiah chapter 41 says, I... Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. This idea that, again, that God reaches out and is part of salvation, that as he reaches out and he grabs a hold of us, that that moment that we recognize that we're not God and we need God through the person of Jesus Christ and we say yes to him, there's an establishment of a relationship. There's an establishment of a covenant. And so we see that establishment, and even in weddings today, when when two couples stand before one another and say, hey, I do, they're establishing a covenant. And so how do we visually show the establishment of a covenant? We show it through the two candles coming together. The two shall become one, and they create this flame together. And because of that flame, there's there's no separation. There's an indistinguishable between who the couple are. Some people, they use sand, and they pour the, the sand together, and you can't. So there's this establishment of the covenant. And so as God being God, it's inseparable. There's, he reaches out his strong right hand and we establish relationship with him. That even in those moments where we sense or we feel like we want to walk away from him, that with his strong right hand, he holds on to us. So I don't know if you've ever had that moment where someone's in a fearful place and, and they want to walk away and you just kind of grab and you want to hold on. You, you know what I'm talking about? And so that's that imagery is that God reaches and he holds on to us and he never relinquishes. That his strong right arm is too strong. There's nothing too difficult in our life. The things that we drag him through, there's nothing too difficult. He holds on to us with that. As a matter of fact, there's this story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you may know about him from VeggieTales. You know, the bunny, the bunny. Oh, I ate the bunny. All right, I have concerts every Sunday night at midnight here. Uh, tickets will be on sale later on. The iPad, just swipe your card, and it goes to me. All right, and so so you all know that. Maybe you've seen that story. And so here's King Nebuchadnezzar, and he is the most powerful man in the world at this time. And so he believes, as he should, right, because he's human, everyone should bow down to him. He's the king of kings in his world. All the other kings come to him, and they literally bow down before him and pray, pay him and give him homage And so he's the most powerful man in the world, and everybody's bowing down to him. But he comes up against one that he can't handle, and it's these guys that come 
from Israel, these Hebrew kids that come and they present to him and they don't bow down to him. As a matter of fact, they only bow down to Yahweh. And so that really makes him mad. He gets fired up about it and he begins to depress and he begins to try to do things. And y'all have heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they go in a fire. And so this is that whole King Nebi thing. And so he is so convinced that he's the most powerful thing that God has to do some dramatic things and God pushes him down even to the fact that he wants to be so powerful that it drives him to insanity. And that we see that at the end of his story, one of the last things about his life is that he is so driven to insanity that he is on the hills eating and acting like the cows that he's been raising. So he's out there literally grabbing grass and eating and chewing cud, and he's thinking he's a cow. He's driven that insane by this idea that he should be the king of kings and Lord of Lords, and everybody should bow down to him. And so that whole thing is going on. And then somewhere in that process, he then recognizes that he is not all-powerful and that Yahweh is all-powerful. And in that moment, in that exchange that happens in his heart and his mind and soul, then the insanity leaves, and he ends up somehow or another, he ends back up on the throne. And listen to the words that he says in recognition of that in Daniel uh, chapter 4. Verses 34 and 35. He's, he's talking and he's thinking about God and, and all this. And he says, there is no one who can block his, the almighty God's hand or say to him, what have you done? But here's the most all-powerful king in the world at that time. And he's driven to insanity. And he bows down before God and he says, there is nothing too impossible or too difficult for you. That the God that we worship is a mighty Mighty God. So the other part of that is not only is he mighty, but he is God. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we see this, that, that because he's God, God came in flesh. This is the uniqueness of the Christmas story. We, we have a mighty God, and so we understand his strength. But being God means, in Colossians 2, 9, is that he dwelt among us. In Colossians 2, 9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwelt bodily in Christ. In other words, as Jesus walked the earth and did what he did and said what he said, God himself was in the person of Jesus. That's the miracle of the Christmas story, the incarnation of God in the flesh of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Even John 1.14, Jesus, the, the Logos, the word, Jesus dwelt among us. In other words, he was a neighbor, right? He he was in Galilee. He was in Nazareth. God lived and grew up in Nazareth. And so God dwelt among us. What does that mean? What does that look like for God to dwell among us? Even Thomas, y'all know the story a little bit of Thomas. If you've been around church just a little bit, the, the idea of doubting Thomas, you've heard of that. Hey, you're a doubting Thomas or I'm a doubting Thomas. And this is someone who after Jesus's death, and resurrection, Jesus began to show up and talk to different people and see different people. And, and Thomas had been off working and doing his thing and hadn't been able to see Jesus yet. And Jesus had to appear to almost all of the disciples. And so the disciples are telling Thomas the story of, hey, listen, Jesus is alive. And we've had dinner with him. We've talked to him. That he's, the, he's really, truly resurrected. And Thomas says, I won't believe it until I see it. As a matter of fact, that's what... Many of our neighbors have that same thought even today. I won't believe it until I see it. And so here Doubting Thomas is in the midst of that. And he's saying, I won't believe it until I see it. And the next time that they're all together, disciples together, Thomas happens to be there. And Jesus shows up. And without a word said, Jesus walks up to Thomas. And Thomas falls down and says, my God, my God, my Lord, my God. That in that moment that everything 
that he'd heard from Jesus, everything that he'd seen, everything that he had been a part of, he recognized in that moment when he saw Jesus' nail-scarred hands that he'd been dead, that he'd been resurrected, and he was physically there before him, and he fell down before the King of kings and Lord of lords. The mighty God had been raised from the dead. So what does it mean for the mighty God to have walked among us and dwelt among us? In Matthew chapter 8, I think we see a great synopsis of the power of mighty God and the person of Jesus Christ that took place. And the very first part of Matthew chapter 8 is the story of Jesus walking into a place kind of like this. And there was a a guy waiting on the outside of the courts of the temple. And as he began to walk in, there was a guy standing on the outside that had leprosy. And because he had leprosy, he couldn't enter into the church of the time. He couldn't. So he was on the outside. And Jesus walked up and put his hand on him and said, hey, you are healed. And immediately his leprosy was healed. That's a pretty good day, don't you think? And so that, that's the first act in Matthew chapter 8. And so in the midst of all of that, after church had gotten out, they thought they were going to go eat at Peter's house, but they had heard that Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and so she wasn't able to provide. And so I'm sure some of you kind of have this feeling that Thanksgiving Christmas is the worst time to get sick, right? Because you're preparing for people to come over, and you just plow through it, and you go through it, and everybody else gets sick with you because you're cooking sick, right? And so here's Peter's mother-in-law. There's this big old group of disciples. Jesus' disciples are supposed to come over, but she's too sick to provide dinner. And so they're headed out of church, and they're going over to Peter's mother-in-law house. And along the way to Peter's mother-in-law's house to, to provide healing for her, a centurion comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I hear about stories about you and your power and your majesty and your strength and the, the healing that you do. And I have a slave, I have a servant over here who needs to be healed. Will you come heal him? Jesus says, listen, I don't even need to go to your house to heal him because of the faith that you have. At this moment, your servant will be healed. And immediately, the centurion left and found his servant had been healed, that the power of Jesus and God among us didn't even have to physically be present to provide healing. And so he healed a leper. He healed the centurion's servant Away, away, on the way to Peter's mother-in-law's house, he walks into Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she's laid up. She's sick. I'm assuming she's got the flu. I don't know what they had back then. And so she had the whooping cough or something, and she couldn't do what she needed to be doing. And so Jesus walks up and says, hey, get up. you got stuff to do. And uh, I tried that one time in my house. It didn't go very good. So uh, I found out I wasn't very mighty, and uh, I had stuff to do myself. And so Jesus said, hey, you got stuff to do and healed. And she gets up and begins to go about the day. And again, the power of what happens. And so I'm sure then that Peter and his crew, Jesus, they sat around and they enjoyed the fellowship with Peter's mother-in-law and they enjoyed dinner together. And so as the end of the evening came about, Jesus and his disciples then went out because they had stuff to do the next day. They went and got in a boat and as they're going across the day, I'm sure Jesus was tired and the disciples were, were amped up and excited about what had been, they had seen and been a part of that day. And so Jesus and the disciples get in a boat and they're going across in the midst of the night. A storm comes up and the disciples get excited. They get fearful and Jesus is just taking a nap. He's, he's out. He's worked hard that day and he's taking a nap and the disciples finally just go over there and say, Jesus, aren't you even afraid? And Jesus says, quiet. And imagine the disciples at first thought that he was talking to them, like, hush, quit acting like kids. But in the midst of saying quiet, the storm quieted. The words of the mighty God spoken quieted their souls and brought from fear to quiet and peace, but also brought peace to the waves. 
a mighty God. And so then immediately they ended up on the other side. And as they were on the other side, there was opportunity for them to do ministry again. And there were two men that approached Jesus that were filled with demons. And Jesus begins to talk to them. And the demons then responded. Jesus said, listen, we know who you are. And Jesus says, hush, don't tell anybody. And they said, before we acknowledge, before we leave, we want you to ask you, will you do us a favor? Will you put us into these herd of pigs and send us away? And so Jesus, the mighty God, in that moment said yes. And those demons left those two men and went into the herd of pigs. And those herd of pigs went into the lake and drowned. The demons acknowledged the power of Jesus, and they left. Interesting. And then as they continued on, Jesus was at a place teaching and As we see in Matthew chapter 9, at that point, Jesus is teaching again, probably in a house-type setting and telling the stories, and people begin hearing the stories. You can see they're not able to walk too far, so the stories of what he's been doing is beginning to travel. And so people are gathered around Jesus, and and it's impossible to even get into the house. It's sold out. And so he's there, and some people that had heard the stories of healings and what Jesus, the mighty God, had been doing, brought their friend on a stretcher. And they brought him before Jesus, and they set him down and said, Jesus, we need our friend to be healed. And Jesus healed their friend. That all within about 30 to 40 verses, we get to see in Matthew chapter 8, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, the power of the mighty God who dwelt among us, who walked with us. And that time after time that he encountered people that needed healing, that needed transformation, that he encountered and he provided it. Sometimes with a touch Sometimes just saying it's going to happen, but the mighty God would intervene so that people would know that, one, he is God and that God dwelt among us. Interesting thing, I think, for us is that if we've said yes to Jesus, sometimes we question whether he can do the impossible, whether he is unstoppable, whether our sins are too much, whether our thoughts are too much, whether our stuff is too much for him. And we forget that the mighty God, that whenever we said yes to him, and reached down his righteous right arm, his strong arm, and he reached out and he grabbed and he held onto us, and he will never relinquish us. That those that say yes to him, he establishes a covenant. And when God establishes a covenant with his people, that covenant can never be broken. Because it's contrary to his character for him to break a covenant. Now, in our humanity, we constantly pursue other things because we think those things are going to bring something different or we're going to feel different or whatever that is that we're pursuing. And constantly, God is waiting and he never lets go with his strong arm. And then with the other arm, he's ready to wrap us up and bring us back close and say, I told you, I told you, my child, those other things would not provide and not give you what you wanted. Only will I bring. Only will I provide what you need, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. This morning, I challenge you, do you know the mighty God? Have you reached out and said and allowed him to hold on and know that he's in covenant relationship with you, that he will not relinquish you as his child? He loves you and adores you, and you can run as far as you can possibly run, but if you've established that relationship, he will hold tight to you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that a son has been born and a child has been given. And that, Father, that he is a wonderful counselor and that he's a mighty God. Father, I thank you that because he is mighty, my stuff, my running is 
will never exhaust you. That your resources are unlimited, your strength is unlimited, your power is unlimited. And Father, that there's nothing that I can do to run far enough from you that, Father, that you've established a mighty covenant with us. Father, may we rest in that. May we rest that there's nothing that you cannot do. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.